Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again just for another day to be here alive and with the freedom to listen to your word in this beautiful place you've given us. Father, we ask that you open our eyes this evening. As usual, that's our request, that your spirit grab hold of us, get us out of the way, and help us understand divine perspective. We just want to know life from your point of view. We ask that you give us uh, wisdom and humility. And Father, most of all, we are grateful and thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man who willingly left heaven to become a man for our benefit, to take away our debt once for all at that cross. We thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection as the proof of eternal life through him who conquered for us. We ask that you bless this message, Father. Guide us by your Spirit. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, the deceitfulness of sin, part 24. So I have a fairly simple job to do this evening, compared to my usual very difficult job on Tuesday evenings. <laughs> And that is to review a survey we took on Sunday about the conscience. So if you notice on Sunday, you know, a survey is, let's just examine a bunch of verses about this particular topic, right? A word. Let's go through it. And that's basically what we did on Sunday for the first time in this series. So we're going to review some of that. And uh, we also saw how the conscience relates to the deceitfulness of sin. So again, we're trying to tie all that together. Don't lose sight of that. But one thing that the Spirit's been saying is, in this series, if we know how things work, if we learn how things work, how they operate, like the sin nature, but also like the conscience, if we learn how these things work, biblically speaking, then we're at a great advantage, and we can avoid the deceptions of the world. So first we had this explanation of the conscience going back to Thursday on the board. Conscience comes from con and science, which basically means with and knowledge. It means to know oneself, a person's good conscience is based on data. It is not the source of data. Rather, it's especially equipped to judge right from wrong. So that's a really interesting distinction. You know, we can, um, that was clarifying to me, I guess I might say my own soul, because Without the proper data, as we heard on Sunday, the conscience is kind of like lost in a hole, uh, only, only operating on what it's been given its whole life, which, as we know from the world, is a lot of garbage. So despite being given this powerful faculty from God, awesome faculty, really, sin can go on tricking us. Even though we have this conscience thing, sin can go on tricking us. And we've discovered that the real culprit is bad data. So I thought of an analogy on Sunday as pastor was teaching, you know, God gives me certain things that I think he wants me to share on Tuesday. So just a little analogy. It's like a judge in a courtroom 
What if you're in court and the judge is being fed false information? Well, you, my friend, are in trouble, right? I mean, bad information, lies. What if the judge is duped by a sleazy defense attorney? How is he going to make a good, righteous decision? He's obviously not. So it's the judge's job to make sure he gets good information, right, and to test the information he's given. Well, you can apply the analogy to the spiritual life. The conscience is designed to differentiate right from wrong. But if sin and the world can convince us of lies, then even though we're sincere in our conscience, we can be wrong in our judgments. That's just how it is. There's a lot of people that are sincere in what they believe. And like Pastor Seven Sunday, they'll defend it tooth and nail. They're convinced in their own mind. But the problem is their mind is filled with lies. So it's not like they're lying. Then It's not like they have bad intentions or they're purposely deceiving. They really believe what they believe is true. So again, the conscience is designed to differentiate right from wrong. But if sin and the world can convince us of lies, which it does to all of us to some degree, then even though we are sincere in our conscience, we can be wrong in our judgments. That's something that came out on Sunday, and that's why we can't get angry with people that just don't see the light of the word yet. We can react. On the board, regarding a good conscience, only submission to the word of God and his Holy Spirit can educate us rightly so that we have good information to judge from. It's just the fact of the matter. People do think out there that there are all different sources of good information, whether it be Oprah or Dr. Phil or philosophy or psychology or a professor at college that they put too much esteem in. They think these are good sources of good information, but only the Word of God and the Spirit, only submission to the Word of God and the Spirit is going to give us the right data, the healthy data from which we can have a good conscience from. So just think about how oftentimes you honestly thought something was right in your life, but later in your life the Word shed light on the subject and you had to admit you were wrong. And this came out on Sunday, but it's a painful thing if you look at your own experiences, if you look at the things you clung to, you stuck up for, and uh, even acted upon, and now you cringe because of those bad decisions you made or thoughts you had, but at the time you honestly thought you were right. So God does take that into account, right? As opposed to someone who knows something's wrong, of course. That'll come up again. But what happened there when, you know, you went through that thing? And, and we're going to do it again, right? Like we tend to think, oh, well, I'm, I know it all now. Like we don't say that, but we think it's not going to happen. I'm not going to make the same mistake again. Yes, you are. In a different area. In a different way. So we stay humble and keep learning the word and keep taking in divine perspective. But what happened was the mind wasn't filled correctly. So you might have followed your conscience honestly, 
but you didn't have accurate information from the Word on the subject. So you're going to suffer. And people in your periphery suffer. And that's why we humble ourselves before the Word and we cling to the fact that God gives grace to the humble. If we humble ourselves before the Word, you know what? He's going to guide us, but He's also going to protect us in certain situations. You might even have something you're about to do. But because you're being humble before him on a regular basis, he might even nip it in the bud right before you get in trouble. See, because that's, that's how gracious he is. That's how he wants to be towards us, and he can be if we're humble. I don't think we can underestimate or overestimate that truth, the beautiful power in that truth. So on Sunday, we visited several passages about the conscience. Uh, let's revisit a few of them. Go to Romans 2.14. Romans 2.14. And as we revisit them in context, keep an eye on the strategy of sin and how it's trying to deceive us even in our consciences, even when we think we're right. Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." So men are accountable to God because there's a baseline conscience God's given them about himself, at least. And as I was reviewing the notes, this, is, this kind of popped out to me a little bit, you know. This baseline conscience that every man has is largely about God himself and his existence, as we'll read further on. That, that's why no man has excuse. And then a man has to learn once he turns to God, then a man learns God's ways, right? And, and the conscience gets filled with good stuff from the mind. But there's a baseline conscience that every man's given to know about God. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday, their conscience bearing witness. God has inserted a conscience in mankind that innately responds to God's law. For example, except for psychopaths, all people, believers and unbelievers, know it's wrong to murder another person. This doesn't exist in the animal kingdom, which functions on instincts. So there's a certain moral law that men are given by God, a base that they can't even explain themselves. And that's a beautiful thing to use with people you're witnessing to. Why do you have a conscience? Why do you have this moral base? Where did that come from? So as came out on Sunday, it's because of this conscience that God provided that unbelievers are without excuse. So just look back at Romans 1.18 again. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it 
evident to them. I mean, we could just rest on that. Whenever someone's denying God, they might even feverishly be, be doing it and saying, there's no way, you're a fool, you know, science gives us everything, even though it doesn't. They might, you know, be fully motivated emotionally behind it. But look, God made it evident to them. So we can rest on that. God, in his perfect fairness, gave every person a conscience, not to mention creation itself in this passage, by which they know he exists. They know he exists. Just accept, like, accept that in your own soul as evangelists. They know he exists. Deep down, they know. They inherently know they have a creator whom they're going to answer to one day. They may be in full suppression mode. Like hook, line, and sinker, they bought it. You know, they've denied it so long their heart is getting hard. But as we just read, it's evident within them. So as evangelists, we have to cling to that, that they're not, they're not uh, unequipped. They are equipped with a conscience. And the Holy Spirit is using that to knock on their soul. So they might suppress the truth about God, but deep down they know because God's perfect fairness provided the truth to them, at least in a baseline. God gave them an apparatus that the Holy Spirit uses on all men by grace to convict them. And as clarified on Sunday on the board, for believers, it's not an issue of their conscience failing. It's what they do with their convictions. They choose to say no in the end. They might even say they don't know. They might even say they don't understand or they don't believe there's a God, right? It comes from a form of arrogance and denial. For unbelievers, it's not an issue of their conscience failing. It's what they do with their convictions. The Spirit is right there nudging them with the gospel right there as well, ready to go. But as we know, God won't force anyone. But he does make the truth about himself clear to them. It could be the staunchest atheist. It could be the most technical scientist. God makes the truth about himself clear to them. And it's their choice to acknowledge him and surrender or not. Here's another verse we saw on Sunday, Romans 13, 5. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to governing authorities, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. So here's another example of something God provided man. He made it clear to every man through the conscience that it's right to obey governing authorities. Of course, sin wants to rebel, like always. It's, it's, you can even, I've even seen this in myself when um, I guess I honestly examine myself in certain situations, my sin nature wants to rebel against certain authority situations. Something comes up, it could be a law, it could be a government, um, it could be work-related, it doesn't really matter. Your sin nature is like prodding you from behind. Go ahead, challenge him. Go ahead, challenge him. Doesn't it? Am I the only one? Come on. 
Your sin nature naturally wants to do, it craves to do that. It wants to rebel. Why do you think teenagers get themselves in so much trouble? Because they're letting it run wild. They're letting it go because it feels good, quote unquote, to, uh, I don't know, be a rebel for some reason, but that's the flesh feeding itself, right? Sin tries to convince people it's okay to disobey authorities. So that's always there, fighting against that good conscience that God gave them. But God provided the conscience to battle with sin, to show man the right way, just as the Spirit battles the flesh in Galatians 5. It's a provision from God to battle the flesh so it doesn't just get its way. Thank God for that, or we literally would destroy ourselves. So as believers, we're given a new heart to learn God's ways in humility. And as we've heard before from the Spirit, that takes time. So, you know, someone finally turns to God, right? Someone finally repents, turns to Christ, says, I need you to save me. They're given a new heart by God. And now... We need to learn God's ways to fill our conscience, right? Or fill our mind, I guess you could say, with good knowledge. So our conscience has something to work with and be a good judge. We do have to kind of relearn things in life from before our salvation. And that takes time is the point. Sanctification, that's what it's all about. So turn again to 1 Corinthians 8, 7. This kind of comes up in this verse here. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. These are letters that Paul wrote to the churches. This was to the church at Corinth. So we have to um, submit to God's knowledge, to God's wisdom, if we want to have a good conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 7. However, not all men have this knowledge. Notice how it starts out. Not all men have this knowledge. There's something missing. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So on the board, their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience is weak because the data set has recently changed and their confidence is affected. Doubt seeps in as a result, also, which is a normal part of reorientation to truth. So, for example, a new believer in this passage, right, doesn't know about God's viewpoint on food and food sacrificed to idols, etc. Doesn't know God's perspective yet. Not living in the freedom either that he's been called to live in. So, again, in verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, Paul goes on in verse 8, teaching truth, giving some good data to work with for these believers. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours, so Paul just gave them awesome truth in verse 8 to set them free. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
those that don't know yet, that don't have the knowledge yet. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That is, like, scary. A scary statement. That is a very solemn statement in both verse 11 and 12. You ruin the brother for whose sake Christ died. And when you sin against someone with a weak conscience, when you knowingly sin against someone with a weak conscience, you sin against Christ. The Bible, as uh, most of you should know by now, is very wordy about the responsibility upon us when we know better. That's like a huge biblical principle. When we know better, when we know the truth, we are so responsible now. Um, and God doesn't let us off the hook easily, and it may even require strong discipline at times. When you know better, you're on the hook. Like, God's not mocked. He's like, son. <laughs> Use the father-son analogy again, right? If your 12-year-old knows better about a certain situation, and the father knows he knows better now, and he does it anyway, the hammer's going to come down. And it should, right? Out of love for that child who's going to go down the wrong path and, you know, hurt somebody else or hurt himself. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a direct disrespect to the father, isn't it? When a, when a son does that, fully knowing it's against his father's wishes. And so the Bible's really big on that, a la James 4.17. And this right here in 1 Corinthians 8 is just another example. When we know better, that means we have knowledge. I know I said that wrongly. Trying to combine the two. When we know better, we have knowledge to differentiate right from wrong in a situation. And that changes everything. That's huge. And that's what God is saying right here. He's like, don't hurt somebody when you know something bothers them. When you know their conscience is weak and a certain food or drink bothers them, for example, it's not a bad example, right? We can all relate. We probably all know somebody that really has strong beliefs in a certain area with a certain food or a certain drink. Now, if we know that they have that feeling and we on purpose, you know, push them, are we not showing them no love? Does that make sense? Are we not saying, I really don't care that this bothers you? And therefore, that reflects on Christ? And if it's a brother in Christ, you're sinning against Christ. We just read. So, our Father, as a good Father, is on us about this, and He holds us accountable. And as part of our calling as saints who are saved by grace... We are to put others ahead of ourselves. Correct? We don't want to hear that all the time. But we are to put others ahead of ourselves. So number one, we know what's right in a situation. Let's assume we know what's right in a situation. Number two, the godly heart is told to put others ahead of self. 
So what does a godly person do with the information he has? A godly person, knowing, having the knowledge already, obeys his conscience instead of resisting the conscience. You know when the conscience tells you you shouldn't do something because it's going to aggravate someone, and your flesh is like, yeah, let's go aggravate them, right? But the Spirit is not knocking on your conscience, saying you know you shouldn't do this, and you know it's going to hurt them, and think about it's going to hurt Christ as well. The godly person obeys his conscience. He does what he's convicted is the right thing, which in this case is not eating a food that will make a weaker person stumble. On the board, Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. The mind of Christ, right there. And this is the mindset of the believer because he wants to please God. And if so, then obedience follows. We talked on Sunday about being patient with those who might not yet understand what the Word of God says. And don't forget, patience comes out of love. Patience comes out of love. This came up a few weeks ago too, but in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, part A, love is patient and love is kind. So just as God was patient with us in our past, out from His very character of love, so we should treat others with such care and compassion. You know, we're so impatient at times. Um, when someone doesn't get something or they have a weakness that we can't relate to. You know what I mean? We all have different weaknesses, different um, strengths obviously too, but different weaknesses. When you can't relate to somebody's weakness, there's a tendency to get agitated. Right? How can you think that way? But if they're your brother in Christ, what's your responsibility? There's one responsibility, to love them, no matter the details, no matter the circumstances. And we're held accountable, you know, by God. When dealing with others who are stumbling or confused, we might be wise to first let them know we love them and care about them. This kind of came out on Sunday also. <clears throat> it's so easy to react. We might instead want to let them know, listen, I can tell you believe what you're saying. I can tell you're being sincere. So, you know, we might say, I love your heart in human speak. You know, I could tell you, you, you really believe what you're saying. So I'm not challenging that. But something I think maybe we can talk about is, where do you get that from? And is there, is there a, a truth that we can find about that topic, whatever it is? Instead of jumping down their throats with a quick, yeah, but, right? It's like one word. We say it so, you know, quickly. Yeah, but. And someone's trying to make a point from their heart. They, they think they're right. Their, their conscience is, it's got what it's got to work with. They honestly are being sincere. And, you, and the first thing we do is, yeah, but. Instead of saying, you know, okay. You know, you seem like you're being honest with me. Like, show them some love. And that breaks down the walls to where maybe you can give them good data from the Word of God. 
So as we know, we're all to tell the truth in love, always. Go to Ephesians 4.14. Ephesians 4.14. And just think about this. I mean, this could apply to evangelism towards unbelievers. This could also apply to uh, weaker believers that are new in the faith and don't understand too much of the word yet. If we lose love, we lose them. If we lose love, if love isn't out front, we're going to lose them. We're going to lose their attention, their ear. Just how it is. Ephesians 4.14 As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We must foster one another along, if that makes sense. We got to put our arm around that weaker brother and bring them along. You know? Every believer is part of the body of Christ. So think about that right now as you think about people that rub you the wrong way, that you don't have patience with that honestly you don't show love toward because they're just not, whatever, maybe different personality, but they're a believer in Christ. Maybe they have a different weakness you can't relate to, but they're a believer in Christ. Have patience and love with them like God had with you. First Peter one twenty two. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. We're accountable, we're responsible to do this because we know better. Most of you listening to my voice know better. So obeying our conscience with the knowledge we've just been given. If you didn't know better, we just went through some verses that now you know better. Now you're responsible, accountable. So obeying our conscience with the knowledge we've just been given, we don't want to make anybody stumble. We don't want to make anybody stumble. Unless you pray about something and the Spirit tells you to, quote-unquote, aggressively go at someone in a certain area, and you, it's clear, clear from the Spirit, this is our rule of thumb. We don't want to make anybody stumble. Love does whatever it takes to avoid that. Even if, as Paul said, never eating meat again, if I have to. Some of you would be like, may it never be, Right? <laughs> Never eat meat again? What? Are you willing to do that, though, if, if there's a person that you live with, let's say, someone that's always by your side, and until the day they realize it's okay to eat meat, are you willing to not eat meat? These are hard issues. This is, is are you willing to live in the love of Christ or love of self? So Paul said, I'll never eat meat again. If that's what it takes to uh, strengthen my brother or to avoid his falling down the hill, tumbling down the hill. Whatever it takes should be our attitude. We all got a long way to go, as we can see. So we are rightly 
gentle with those who don't understand a certain truth yet. All right? Like, biblically speaking, as a rule of thumb, we might say, we are rightly gentle with those who don't understand a certain truth yet, whose consciences are weak because they don't have good data yet. We are also rightly harsher or more direct with those who should know better, as Pastor alluded to on Sunday. There's a time for everything under the sun. Every situation is different. Every person is different you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a brother that knows better or should know better, your conversation can and should be totally different with them. And as a good example of that, um, go to Galatians 2, verse 11. Galatians 2, verse 11. So first of all, we're rightly gentle with those who don't understand the truth yet. And we're rightly harsher or more direct with those who should know better, as Pastor alluded to. Remember how Paul spoke to Peter when he was about to compromise with Jews. Peter, the Apostle Peter. You know the one in Acts chapter 10 that said, Huh, God showed me he's impartial with the Gentiles too. He gave them the Spirit too. Remember that, Peter? Well, in Galatians 2, he compromises and goes back to hang out with the Jews and avoids the Gentiles to not look bad in front of the other Jews. Paul's like, um, you know better. <laughs> you know better. You're the one that taught me this. Really? This, that's what happened. Look at Acts, uh, Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, the men from James, you know, the Jews, when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth, so in other words, they knew better. They had knowledge of the truth. The only time you're not straightforward is if you don't have the knowledge to be straightforward. So he says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? So there's a time to be rightly harsh with people that know better. There's a time to be rightly gentle with those that don't. And as an example of that, Paul, as many of you know, pleaded. He often pleaded with unbelievers with great compassion towards his Jewish brethren who couldn't see who Christ was yet. He was gentle and he begged them to be reconciled to God. Paul was as gentle as they come. He was also as fierce as they come. Sounds like the lion and the lamb. But he was gentle and begged unbelievers, those who didn't know better yet, he begged them to be reconciled to God as in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So as we witness to those who have a weak conscience, let's remember this approach. The approach of love really is what it is. It could be for believer or unbeliever. For some reason... The Spirit's bringing this up again. 
the fact that love must lead the way, always be out in front. Because that's what they're going to see and that's what they're going to remember when you walk away. Whether they understand your words or not at the time almost doesn't even matter. You know, you, I'd rather have someone leave me saying, you know, I have no idea exactly what he was getting at, but he really showed me love. He really showed me he cared about me. Then have someone walk away and say, yeah, I understood what he said, but he was a jerk. <laughs> he wasn't very loving. He's supposed to be Christian. Go again to 1 Corinthians 8.11. 1 Corinthians 8.11. People are always watching us. Especially once they know you're a Christian, or you claim to be, they're always examining your life, whether you like it or not. It, it would do us well to remember that, and would uh, probably keep us from sin to remember that. 1 Corinthians 8.11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul lays more knowledge on us to fill our consciences with in 1 Corinthians 10.25 on the same subject of food. 1 Corinthians 10.25. So Paul's filling people with divine knowledge so that they can have their consciences, you know, equipped. 1 Corinthians 10.25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience's sake. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience's sake. But if anyone says to you, see, here's where it changes. If anyone says to you, this meat, this is meat sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake. See, now you're accountable because now you know it was sacrificed to idols. Not that you can't eat it, you can. But now you know the person who's bringing it up to you is testing you, most likely. Are you going to eat this? They don't know any better that all things are from God and it's all good. It's all sanctified by God. So now that you know that this person is pointing this out on purpose, for conscience's sake, you uh, probably shouldn't eat it. Every situation is different. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. And listen to your conscience that he uses. So again in verse 28. But if anyone says to you this meat is sacrificed. Or this is meat sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you. And for conscience's sake. I mean not your own conscience. But the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? So if you know you're going to hurt someone's conscience, you are better off refraining, otherwise you might sin against Christ himself. That's what we just learned. We are responsible for what we know in our heart, and even if we might be in the right, in good standing with the truth, we must consider our brother first. So says Christ. And as we encounter those with weak consciences on the board, 
don't blame the conscience. We mustn't make a habit of blaming and eventually attacking another person's, person's conscience for simply doing its job. Rather, we, mu- we ought to investigate the data set, said, the data set, said conscience, independent. <laughs> Not alone, I'm tired. <laughs> Rather, we ought to investigate the data set, said conscience is dependent upon and challenge the data, the false, false knowledge they have not the conscience, which is a slave to it. So don't blame the wrong thing. The problem is a lack of knowledge, not the conscience itself. We mustn't be all about winning the argument. That attitude is fleshly if you think about it. We can get self-righteous as Christians puffed up with our knowledge and do it the wrong way. We mustn't be all about winning the argument. That is fleshly. This is another way sin deceives us. If we win the argument but don't have love, they will reject our message even if we're right. So what good is it? We're there to win other people, right? Aren't we told to win souls, save some? We're there to win others, not win the argument, even if it means not saving face. This takes a lot of growth, doesn't it? I mean, it takes like a lot of sanctifying. Like God's got to get us to this place where we're humble enough to accept looking like we're defeated in a situation for the benefit of somebody else. We are there to win others, not to win the argument, even if it means not saving face. And as we heard from the Spirit on Sunday, there's no reason to get emotionally charged in one-on-one conversations. You know, God showed me I need to learn this as an evangelist. You know, Michael would be out with me in in the park one day, and he's like, wow, you jumped on that guy. Like, I did? Yeah. I jumped at him, right? The yeah, but. But there's no reason to get emotionally charged. So there's a lack of love in that situation. There's a lack of understanding in that situation of maybe a weak conscience. We're better off just walking away in peace if we have to. There's no reason to get emotionally charged. If someone's not ready, if someone's not willing, wish them all the best and move on in love, right? Here's another way to think of the conscience and how, you know, it's a subject to the mind. The conscience is only a responder to what's in the mind. It's only a responder. It responds to what it's been given. Kind of like, you know, the wife in marriage, right? The woman and the husband. She's a responder. She's built to respond to what she's fed, to what she's given. And so maybe that's a decent analogy. The conscience can't stand on its own in the sense that it needs to be fed truth to be a good conscience. So, for example... It's like getting angry with someone who's mentally challenged. Would you get angry at someone that you know is mentally challenged, is unable to think to a certain level? You would not. Why? You know that they don't know better. So take that to the spiritual realm. What about the person that you're talking to that's handicapped spiritually? Aren't they? But what do we do? We look at the appearance, right? 
they look fine, they seem smart, they talk well, right? I say they talk good, but that wouldn't be talking well. They, they, they look awesome, right? They look like a good person. They're a sharp person. Why don't they get it? They're spiritually handicapped. We look at the appearance. What about their soul that's like a vacuum? That has nothing good in it. So why can we get angry at them? Because we judge by the appearance, like idiots. So on the board, this came out on Sunday. This was you know, a great theme that kept coming out. Don't fight over consciences. One of the most effective ways of diffusing emotional banter over right and wrong arguments is to objectively consider each party's underlying knowledge and compare it to Holy Scripture. This isn't emotional. This isn't even about you and me. You seem like you're being an honest person. I'm not questioning your integrity, but I'd like to show you something if you're open, you know, because I think there's a piece of knowledge that you're not seeing. And then you follow up with, you know, what do you think, honestly, about the Bible? What's your opinion on it? Do you have an opinion on it? Have you ever read it? And obviously that can take you to good places if they're positive. But if they're not, you might have to say, you need to do your own research on why the Bible is supernatural. I'm not going to convince you right now. I know you, you're probably not going to listen to me. Unless you really want to listen, I'll, I'll tell you. But you need to come to your own convictions about how the Bible is the Word of God. And that might be where that conversation needs to end that day, even though it was on a different subject, maybe. So again, on the board, one of the most effective ways of diffusing emotional banter over right and wrong arguments is to objectively consider each party's underlying knowledge and compare it to Holy Scripture. That's our wisest course of action. And we can do it in peace. Now, changing gears just a little bit, we also notice on Sunday that Paul often appealed to men's consciences. So, therefore, we could do the same. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. And the Spirit will lead you in the right approach, as long as you're open, as long as you're humble, as long as you're asking. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. What a statement that is. Those who look at appearances in life rather than the heart just don't know better yet. They've been deceived by sin, and we have the chance to appeal to their consciences. That God-given faculty that they do have to work on their behalf. We can appeal to it just like Paul did right there. And we can feed them some good information 
so that they can munch on that when their head's on the pillow at night, you know, between them and God. We closed on Sunday with Paul's statement about his own conscience being clean, even though he had wrong knowledge at times in his life. So turn again to Acts 23, verse 1. Acts 23, 1. I apologize if I'm going a little bit quickly, but obviously this is a lot of review, and I do want to get to the end of our lesson today. Acts 23, 1. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. On the board, Paul defended his conscience. The Jewish leaders were infuriated at the possibility that Paul maintained a clear conscience, having defected from their religion to the way. This is possible for the person whose false knowledge is replaced with the divine. Remember, the conscience is only a responder to what's in the mind. So strictly speaking, we can't get mad at someone else's conscience being weak. That weakness comes from poor knowledge and a lack of divine perspective. As Pastor also mentioned on Sunday, even when the conscience is defiled, it's as a function of rotten data bad doctrine, false knowledge, etc. You pick your description. All different kinds of bad information filling the mind for years and years and years. Even when the conscience is defiled, it's a function of bad information. Let's continue in Acts 24, 14. Paul goes on after declaring he had a perfectly good conscience before God. He says in Acts 24, 14, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. That's the knowledge. That's divine knowledge. Paul sees the light now. He sees how it all fits together with Christ. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. So Paul let people know he was functioning in integrity to truth. Right? He just said that. I do my best to maintain you know, a blameless conscience before God and men. What is he doing there? He, if, in a way, he's appealing to their conscience. He's saying, I'm being honest with you. I'm following my conscience. I really believe what I'm sharing with you is true. And you know what? That humility also reaches people. Just be honest with them. Let them know that you've researched it yourself, that you've come to your own convictions about something and you, you feel strongly about it. And they might just open up just a little bit to hear why. So now, as we begin to close, back to a look at the total depravity of man related to the conscience. Go to Titus 1.15. Titus 1.15. We've only got five minutes left, so hang in there. I don't know about you, but it was a crazy Tuesday for me today. Usually that's for Thursdays. Titus 1.15. 
To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. So on the board. Here we have the connection between the mind, which is the keeper of knowledge, and the conscience, that which depends upon it. If the mind is defiled, the conscience follows. No two ways about it. It may seem at times that people are purposely defending something horrible, like we talked about abortion on Sunday. But it's possible they literally just don't know any better yet. They honestly think they're in the right from a bad set of data, right? Maybe some bad scientific evidence about life in the womb. And they cling to that with all their heart because maybe they want to cling to that with all their heart for some personal reason. But, and that's the other thing. You never know what people have been through, right? So it might seem people are purposely being evil, but sometimes they literally just don't know any better. They've been duped by sin and the lies in this world. They've been brainwashed, and they think, they honestly think they're in the right. They have bad knowledge from the world. And that's where the weak conscience comes from and even delusion comes from. On the board, Isaiah 47.10b, Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded, perverted, or warped you. That's what hurts the conscience. Again, look at Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Hmm. So what's the Spirit saying to us? As from Sunday, I put this on the board. This came out on Sunday morning. Pay attention to that which you believe to be true. And then compare that daily, the knowledge you have against Holy Scripture. Like, don't be complacent. Don't think, well, obviously, we should never think we have it figured out, all figured out. But we do that. Like, we subtly do that. You know, we subtly rest a little too much on our knowledge, thinking that we're all set. You know, it's funny. I find when sometimes something comes from the pulpit, right? It challenges your beliefs and wh what you thought. And then, you know, you, 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 maybe after a little while you repent or you, you admit you were wrong in a certain area and you change your belief in that area, right? And then I think I'm all set. I think it's all over. I think that there's not going to no be another challenge from the pulpit. You know, as though we got past that one and that's the last one. Kind of silly thinking, but it's a journey. This sanctification thing is a journey. We know so little of what we will know in the end, if we're humble. But again, on the board, pay attention to that which you believe to be true and compare it daily, the knowledge that you have with Holy Scripture, against Holy Scripture, the very fountain of truth. So as we close, a couple of gems came out of Sunday's communion message. One is that true life is discovered through God's Word, the bread of life. True life is discovered through God's Word. Most of you know that. Most of you believe that. And reading the Word is having fellowship with your best friend, the Lord Himself. 
do we look at the word that way? Do we look at reading the word as personal time with the Lord himself teaching you? It's his spirit. It's Jesus' spirit. That's what's really going on when you read the word in humility. So let's examine the attitude of our hearts towards the word of God. Maybe it's not as pure as it should be. And if we find it's not, and we don't have the affections towards the word that we should have, maybe we repent and reconsider our attitude towards the word. Because the attitude of our hearts towards God's word should look like this on the board. I told you about this woman a couple months ago. We can learn so many things from this picture of a woman we met in India years ago. One thing we can learn is that she has an affection towards the Lord and His Word, right? She doesn't need to talk the same language as you. We can also see her attitude and take that for our own. If you don't have a reverent, humble attitude toward the Word of God, a personal affection toward the Word of God, look at her and take that attitude for yourself. Number two, Others are always observing how we treat and honor the Word of God, even when we don't think they're watching us. Do you see the young man on the left out of her line of vision peering over at her? Hopefully you do. But there's so many things going on at once. She doesn't know he's looking. Or she, you know, it doesn't appear she can see him. So this is just a visual aid of what goes on in our lives every day or should go on in our lives every day. And as we close, let's hold the word of God dear in our hearts and read our own Bibles so we can have knowledge that brings glory to God and enables us to live with a good conscience. Amen? All right, let's bow heads. Father, we thank you so much for humbling us, for guiding us by your word and your Holy Spirit. Help us to always be open to your leading and your convictions. We know we don't know it all. We know we never will in this life. And we thank you for another day to submit to you and honor you as our sovereign Lord and creator and savior. We ask, Father, that you help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world in love so that they see Christ in us even if they don't understand our message. We ask these things in Christ's precious name and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen.